Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin. Teos is still off gallivanting around the world. So I needed help. And when I need help, the first person I think of is James Intracasso. James, thank you for coming on to the show and helping us out this week. Oh, Sean, you need more friends if I'm the first person you think of uh, when you uh, when you call for help. Well, yeah, <laughs> if, very useful in many situations. <laughs> if it was a medical emergency, you know, I would still call 911. But if it's oh, a role playing game emergency, <laughs> that you're the person who I come to. Well, thank you. You are my first contact on my role playing game emergency sheet as well. So that's, that is why I'm glad to be here. That's uh, good. So it's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, happy, happy to be there. So you have been on the show more than once, let's say. I have. Including yeah. the last time, just uh, probably a couple months ago, three or three months ago, uh, with, with Rudy Basso, uh, talking about your game. Uh, the name just eluded me. I oh, know what yes. it's about. Uh, to be or not to be a villain. Yes. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. Cool. But for those of you who, for those people out there who may be listening for the first time, uh, you have been now in the industry. You're, I would say that you're gaining the status of old hat. Oh, no. Like, yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's like, oh, yeah, James, he's been around forever. He's done podcasting and, and world builder blog, any award winning. I'm sorry. Any award, oh. any award winning world builder blog. Yes. Important for today's news. So, <laughs> And you know, don't split the podcast uh, network. You you had your your tabletop babble. You were at the Tome Show before that. Uh, then, for a run of probably ten thousand Wizards published books, you had some sort of involvement. What was the first one? The first like hardcover book that you worked on for Wizards? Uh, it was Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Was the okay. first hardcover that I worked on. It was a blast. I uh, loved working on that book. So yep. I, I enjoyed all of my my time working on Wizards books. But that one has a special place um, yeah. because it was the first one that I did. Yeah. yeah, and and you you co-designed that with James Hake. Is that correct? Yeah, James Hake. It, so I've never worked on another Wizards book like this. It was mm-hmm. James Hake and me, and mm-hmm. every week we would meet with Chris Perkins. Once a week we met with him over Zoom, and we would be able to like ask a bunch of questions. Um, and then, uh, in fact, it might have actually been Skype that we were meeting over. Ooh. Can you imagine? Skype. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> From the before times. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we were we would meet over Skype, and we would ask him a lot of questions. Usually it was very Waterdeep related. It was like, hey, so in Waterdeep there's a dragon ward. Does that mean that it affects Dragonborn? Right? Like stuff right. like that. Uh, and Chris would very happily answer all those questions, and then we would go right, 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 and and yeah. So it was a it was a blast working on that because um, we really did have the guidance every week. And I think Wizards now puts out products at a clip that they don't necessarily do that. Although I have not worked on a book with Wizards in a long time, and maybe they are doing that again. But when I by the time I had reached the last book I did with them, it was very much like. Here's an email. Send us a first draft. We'll take it from here. <laughs> yeah, uh, because they were so busy. Uh, I assume. Yeah, I, I think you hit a sweet spot there because before that's in the projects I've done or people I've talked to, it was sort of like that. Here's your outline. If you have questions, let us know. But you seem to to be right in that spot where they were really interacting closely. Maybe it's because you're such a great person to talk to. They they <laughs> just wanted to to get that in. 
Uh, I, do, I mean, I don't know that Chris Perkins wanted to spend a half hour every Friday answering questions about the minutia of Waterdeep yeah. um, from from me and Joey, but he was very kind to do it. And and I do think, I think like it used to be that Wizards was putting out maybe two books a year, right? Mm-hmm. And they those first they put out the core rule books, and like the first three adventures were written by third party. Yep. people entirely who that who wizard sort of oversaw right now you've talked about it on this show a lot um <laughs> and so uh so yeah i think what was happening was they were getting into a place where they were starting to pick it up themselves and and do, do the whole process soup to nuts but they weren't at a place where they were trying to put out three books a year which now seems to be what you know more yeah. four or however many it may be now that yeah. they're they're trying to put it out and a play test and uh you know supporting uh content for the the release of stranger things to have a vecna packnet ready and like all of these other little things that they do so there's a lot more going on it feels like these days at uh at wizards of the coast so but i'm excited to be here today sean because it is my personal mission Mm -hmm. and i'm calling him out right now to be on this podcast more than mike shea Oh. And he was on last episode, and uh, and so I, I've got to be on here to uh, to beat him. I'm throwing down right now, uh, okay. and now we're just going to talk about basketball for the next hour and a half. So S- sit back, everybody. Get ready. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. So this is why I love having James on, because we're not even out of the intro yet, and we've already had an interesting <laughs> discussion about game design. And, and so that's why that's why I love having you on the show, uh, because you know we could get into some deep discussions about some of these things, but... Let's finish your introduction. So you, you've done all this work, and now you are at MCDM Productions, correct? Yes. All right. Yes, that's right. MCDM Productions is Matt Colville's uh, production company that make Kingdoms Warfare and Strongholds and Followers, Arcadia Magazine, and uh, we're about to put out a book called Flea Mortals that's a D&D 5e monster book. Um, so yeah, we've got a lot of stuff that mm-hmm. we're, we're working on over there. It's a great job. I really, really love working there. Cool. So with that in mind, everyone should now have an intimate knowledge of James and Tricasso's not only RPG career, but life in general. Uh, <laughs> right. We, we will get to our listener corner where we take questions and comments from our listeners. We're going to start with Grandpa's advice via Twitter. Uh, Grandpa's advice asks, what tips do you have for making success and failure into a spectrum rather than a binary system? How can how can we reward that poor role made on a good idea? Success with a cost, partial success, partial failure, failure with a small gain. What ways are there to make these up as we go? That is a great and difficult question. And we are actually going to talk about this in more detail later when we get to our main topic, which is going to be designing things for 5e or for an existing system versus creating your own custom systems uh so so we'll we'll get we'll just touch on this a little bit here uh it's a difficult question because of how D D has been designed over the years and for 5e in general it's not made to be a spectrum it's made to be pass fail because what's the most important part of D D for most groups combat and exactly. combat is meant to work. You either hit or you miss. Or if it's a spell, maybe there's an effect even if you fail. But there's, there's not meant to be a spectrum. So when you port that combat system into other aspects of the system, such as role-playing, such as exploration, 
it continues to be pass fail. So there's not a good way, system designed way, to do that spectrum. Would you yeah, agree? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that there are some games you can look at that. Uh, like Powered by the Apocalypse um, games, right, where they have a little bit more of a spectrum. They sort of have a pass, fail, pass with complications uh, Mm. thing going on, which is not a binary, it's a trinary. Uh, And uh, so you you can look at trying to do something like that where it's like, well, if you succeed by five or more, maybe you get something extra. If you fail by five or more, maybe it's worse. Um, So you could could try to implement that in D&D, but what's hard is D&D's skills and ability checks are really you can make them to do almost anything that you could do in real life and some things are just binary in a narrative right they're not interesting to give a level of success for how well did you cook this meal right either cooked it well or you didn't and uh we're we're gonna see that did you climb the cliff yes or no that's all we really need to know we don't need to know did you scrabble all the way up almost to the top and then slide slowly back down because you just barely failed? Or did you grip to the top and pull your way up? That's all narrative stuff, but it doesn't have any mechanical consequence on the game. Um, So I do think when we think about binaries, you want to look for, if that's what you want, there are lots of systems that will give you sort of a gradation of success. Mm. Um, And you can look to that. But what those do is they really will codify more than what are the kinds of things you are rolling for so that they can help you do that. Instead of saying, here's a very flexible ability that you can use for anything strength related and what you would do with it. Right. Um, And so if you look at Powered by the Apocalypse games, uh, it's like, hey, these are moves that you can do. And these moves are very specific. They're used to investigate or fight or question someone right um and there might not be necessarily that sometimes there's like a general move and that Mm -hmm. gives you how you would would work everything else Um, right so yeah that's that's what i would say is look at games like that and also the weird things that D D does that are radiations of success are like the sleep spell they're all like hit point based right Right. like damage is a gradation of success yeah exactly exactly and and oddly D &D has had like success plus with a critical hit or failure minus with a a critical fumble if you play with any of those rules right right? but there's there's nothing in between that there's no sort of succeed or there there is like you've said there there are ways but so here's one way to avoid problems like one question is how do we reward a poor role made on a good idea and don't have the role if it's a good idea, let the idea succeed without any role necessary. Right. Um, and that uh, that eliminates that particular problem. If you want to create a spectrum, you, you have to be careful because you have to remember what 5e is meant to do. If you start messing with the system, the system will be messed up. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> you have to ask yourself, what consequences can there be for you know for success but... Uh, this is a complication. So you ask yourself, what does the system use as consequences? Well, it uses hit points. So you can always say you succeed, but you lose hit points. 
Uh, hit points are the main yes. resource. Uh, exhaustion. When ex- when 5e came out and people saw the exhaustion rules, they were like, oh, this is so cool. I'm going to use this all the time. And then they realized, <laughs> boy, after two levels of exhaustion, that's pretty brutal. Uh, I can't it's quite brutal. <laughs> I can't quite use that. Uh, so lost resources and lost opportunities, right? Those sorts of things can can come into play but you have to then remember what are those resources mean do they mean a lot or do they mean nothing because if you take away resources that mean a lot that's a huge penalty if you take away resources that mean nothing oh you lost 10 gold a 10 gold piece item as you tried to break the door down your spyglass broke Right. If 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 yeah. they have 10,000 gold pieces to spend then that lost spyglass doesn't mean anything so yeah, yeah. I think those are great, and I think I, the only thing I would add to that is I, all the time, and to this day, when I'm running games, it is reflexive sometimes to ask for a, a check when somebody wants to do something. Right. And they'll ask for it, and then they'll roll poorly, and I'll realize, like, oh, this is a thing you should have just been able to do because your idea was really good or because you're a very strong character and it wouldn't, you know, you could do this in your sleep, whatever it may be. And I will say... Hey, you know what? I shouldn't have asked you to roll for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's fine to acknowledge your mistakes as a GM, too, and to say, so if you find yourself in that situation where you're like, oh, this, I shouldn't have asked for this, um, then uh, then just say that. Be open. Be honest with people and, and move on. Yep. Um, so, yeah, but I totally agree that costing people something is a great way to uh, move the story forward to make f- succeed at a cost is a great way to do that. So thank you for that question. I'm sure we'll come back to it uh, in our main topic. We have ShadowMain.com's Jason C. coming to us via Twitter and saying individual character arcs in a campaign, like the Cypher system, has these in the core book, but it could be in any role-playing game. If PCs have these character arcs, how do you keep it from separating PCs from the larger party goals? How do you move the spotlight? And so, yeah, another great question. And I feel like this is how I handle it. Uh, James, you jump in at any point to say how you handle (laughs) it. Having a session zero where you talk about how important you want character arcs to be is important. Because you as a DM or as a player may really want a huge important character arc to take place during the adventure. Other people might not care. Other people might just want to walk up to things with their sword and hit it really hard. That's their character arc. And that's okay. So recognize that. And if you do want character arcs, in that session zero, be clear. What do you want that arc to look like? What are the questions that need to be answered about the character? What are the goals that the character has they're trying to succeed? And what are the conflicts that are going to stop that? If you can set that up, even in an outline form, then you as the game master are going to be better able to fit it into the campaign arc and the individual adventure arcs of your your campaign. If you can do that, the next step becomes easier, but I'll stop there and let James jump in. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's important uh, during that session zero for a GM to set expectations too and say, Hey, we're all making characters just so everybody knows 
it will it will be really hard to work in character backstories that are like X or in general it's a hard thing for me to do. I would prefer if you have characters who we can sort of discover the backstory along the way and then it'll be easier to work into the fiction for me because that's my playstyle, right? I'm just giving examples here. I don't know that that is necessarily my playstyle. I'd prefer to have your backstory up front during that session like Sean is saying so that we can say okay, cool. How does this work? But I think it is good for the GM, you know, session zero is just as much for you as the GM to say like, well, this is a game that's going to take place mostly in the Underdark. So having a long lost parent in the far realm is going to make it really hard for me to connect these two ideas because I'm not planning on really ever leaving the Underdark. Maybe your parent could be lost in the Underdark. Would that work? Maybe your parent could have been pulled through a portal in the far realm that's in the underdark right like Mm -hmm. sort of finding those compromises and making it all work together i think is really important in that session zero um so that then you can weave it into the main story uh which i know sean is going to talk about as well right so once you have that set up then you have to decide as the question asks how do you move the spotlight in my experience the best way there are two good ways to do this the first good way is to make the, those spotlight transitions very, very quick. Work them in in a way that these little individual things, whether they're resolving something or just bringing up something, can be done in a matter of minutes uh, rather than like, you know, spend, or we're going to stop for a half an hour and we're going to go into this. So bring up something that, Oh, you meet an NPC. That NPC has some information that's leading you toward that uh, portal that that your parent was lost in. Have yeah. it have it done in in two or three minutes. Just reminding everyone that this is that arc and we're continuing it. That way, the spotlight doesn't shine on someone for too long, leaving everyone else out. The second way to do it is to make it a really long spotlight that everyone understands. Okay, this whole session is going to be about this character's hunt for their parent. Everyone else, we're still going to play. We're still going to play a game of D&D where we get everything, uh, combat and exploration and all that. But the spotlight's going to be here. Everyone else, I want to know your reactions to this. I want to know your reactions to this character's plight. Do you feel sorry for them? Are you exasperated that that's all they think about? Do you get tired of them diverting from the main plot? Make it sort of an, make it a story-focused episode from a TV show, a character focus, but everyone else gets their say in how it goes. And that way you're moving that arc forward, but you're making it more of the campaign arc as well as a character arc. And everyone gets their say and gets to react. Yeah, I love that. And I I think doing the, uh, hey, here's a little bit, for everybody each session Mm -hmm. if you're going to do that one thing that i like to do is i have a document or note card or something somewhere where i've written what's like the information that is going to help push each character's story forward Mm -hmm. and just what it is you know like by the end of the session it'd be great if sean found out that 
the portal was 500 miles away in this direction, which also happens to be the direction of the big bad, right? Or it would be great if um, Mike finds a, a sword that is uh, has his family crest on it, right? Mm-hmm. And so writing those things down and and then having them to work in kind of at any opportune moment. So it's also a good way to draw in a player, right? If you're playing a session and it's like, oh, I see that Sean has been sort of sitting back and like, I want to kind of draw him into the action. Well, Sean, while everybody is at the tavern conversing with this patron, uh, you see a coded figure sort of gives you a motion forward. And then, you know, you can have that quick three minute scene, which I think is is a great way to do it so that you have those little bits of information ready to go and you can switch the spotlight that way. I also do love a character focused session and just making it clear to everybody that like everybody's going to get one of these. Right. Um, I think is is a really fun thing because the first time it happens, they might be like, well, is, are you now the star of the campaign? Right. It's like, no, 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 no. Next week it might be Sally's. And next mm-hmm. week after that, it's going to be Bob. Right. And we mm-hmm. just keep going through things like that. It's a great way to do it. And, um, you know, the more that those things can be integrated, not just with the main story, but with each other's story mm-hmm. is great. I played a 4E campaign where I had a, uh, like a, dragonborn two dragonborns each of whom had had evil family members mm-hmm. right and one had an evil father and the other one had an evil grandfather uh, or uh an evil uncle and so i made them the same dragonborn that like it was like hey guess what this villain is the same villain for both of you right. and they love that right and it was we talked about it before we we integrated the story to make sure everybody was cool with it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, it was a lot of fun to do that. So if you can integrate those stories into each other, then the other players will care more mm-hmm. about each other's stories. Right. So that uncle is now also a lieutenant of the bad guy who exactly. sent the other parent through the portal. And then you can start. <laughs> but in order to do that, you need to, from the very start, make sure you understand what everyone wants, what everyone's comfortable with in, that char- in their own character arcs. Then you can start to do this behind the scenes uh, weaving of all of these stories together. So excellent point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, uh, I think you you have here in the notes, if you can weave individual character arcs into the main campaign, it's a way to kill several wyverns with one stone. Do you say wyvern or wyvern? What's your... uh... I say say wyvern, but... Wyvern. It sounds more like official. It does. It does. Classy. A wyvern wears a tux. Yeah, wyvern is sort of like you know the 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 accent of the the like the lower class folks. You know, that's right. They see wyverns fly. Yeah, they see (laughs) wyverns flying, but the the king sends out knights to kill the wyvern. Correct. Mm. Correct. And and we are nothing if a pair of kings here on this podcast. (laughs) We are definitely something. Speaking of definitely something, uh, Andrew Basinski via Twitter asked this important question. Is it unbearable for a bear to be a bear? And what what does Andrew mean by this? Well, he means how important is it for D&D that when a PC encounters an owlbear, whether a real owlbear, a druid owlbear, or a summoned owlbear, that this owlbear maintains things that are true about owlbears, such as damage level, attack types, etc.? And at first, this is sort of, seems like a sort of a silly question, but it's not because mm-hmm. it's important that an owlbear be an owlbear in your right. game 
the world should be consistent. Then, when the owlbear is not an owlbear, it becomes all the more exciting and mysterious and shocking to the players. Yes. Yeah, right. And that's a big thing we see in fiction all across novels and television and movies and comic books where we establish rules about the world. Mm -hmm. And then when those rules are broken, it is a shock to us, right? We go, oh, my gosh, how no one could cross through the dangerous mist. But how did this person do that? Right. So it becomes a and that's true for owlbears as well. And I think that's one way you know that it's a druid who has wild shaped into an owlbear and not an owlbear is that it's acting far more intelligent, mm-hmm. right? And maybe casting druid spells, depending on the level of the druid and, and addition you might be playing in. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I 100% agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And then if you attack the owlbear and it disappears, do all owlbears disappear? I don't think so. Oh, maybe this one was summoned and we know that there is somebody sending, you know, uh, so all of those, it's an important question. And it's even more important question because as Andrew followed up on, there was an article <laughs> that we'll talk about in the news about something <laughs> that happens in the new Baldur's Gate 3 game. But we're going to save that for later. Just we'll put a pin in that one. Mastering Dungeons After Dark. Uh, oh, yes. boy. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get there. Um, and we'll actually have more questions in our main segment because a lot of the questions that came in touched on what we're going to talk about there. But this question uh, is a little more specific, and it's from Jonathan Roy via Twitter. What new or newer system or game are you most excited to try and why? I'm thinking Shadow Dark, uh, Weird Wizard, Tales of the Valiant, etc. I'm going to let you take take that first. Yeah, so, I mean, there's... There isn't anything I'm not looking forward to, so let me put that out there. You had Celeste Conowich on this show a couple weeks ago. Sure did. Got really excited for Tales of the Valiant listening to her talk. Um, uh, I uh, of the things that have been listed here, Weird Wizard is something that really appeals to me. I love Shadow of the Demon Lord. I've run it a million times. I'm in a campaign right now. It's the like third one I've been in as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am very excited for Weird Wizard because Shadow of the Demon Lord has a particular like horror violent sort of army of darkness gross uh aesthetic that is not for everyone and i think weird wizard is going to be a way for me to introduce people to a lot of those mechanics that i really like from shadow of the demon lord to people who might find a high fantasy game more appealing than a violent uh, horror game mm-hmm. um and so i am really really excited for weird wizard to come out that's one that i'm uh, super looking forward to and i also just got a copy of a game that i really want to try out it's called tidebreaker rpg mm-hmm. it's made for like action stuff it's written by a guy named nick butler um mm-hmm. who it's like his first project big project but what i saw in previews i really really liked um and so it's made for like high action kind of over the top uh, mm. stuff uh and i i really like that style of gaming um so yeah so i'm excited those are the things that i am currently like itching to to check out most how about you well, as the creator of plants of the tarasque i can't or planet of the tarasque i can't imagine you liking over the top uh action <laughs> so i know it's not my not my calling card at all <laughs> no. so so like james i'm not excited about nothing i'm excited about everything that that's coming out 
to be, if I'm going to be completely honest, though, the two games that I'm most excited about are sort of non-traditional sword and sorcery fantasy. Um, they're by Jason Cordova. One is called Public yes. Access, and the other is called Brindlewood Bay. Uh, Public Access, they're, I, they're both powered by the Apocalypse games. Nice. Uh, but Public Access is about these people who listen to this Public Access radio station back in the day. And it goes off the air, and they go back and listen to old tapes, and it's sort of this horror, this slow-burning oh, cool. horror. And the second is Brindlewood Bay, which is Murder, She Wrote meets Cthulhu, where, <laughs> where you play, where you play oh, right. elderly ladies who are in like this mystery club, and they read mystery novels, but then they go off and they solve these strange murders in their little town of Brindlewood Bay. Uh, with all the while, all of these Cthulhu, Cthulian horrors are behind it. Uh, so it's sort of a cozy Cthulhu uh, game. And I, I've read them. I've like saw, I've seen some videos and I just, and I was on a podcast uh, and stream with Jason uh, recently, one of many people in this. But when he talked about it, I had already been turned on to it and then when he started talking about it i was just like okay i need to play these two games and that's you, amazing i i don't know about you i i'm sure that you're probably like this too what i'm most excited to play is like the stuff that i'm currently working on that you can't talk about right yeah it's like i'm making this game and i just want to play it but it's not quite done yet so i can't like go out and play it so that's what I want to play so badly. <laughs> yes, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's there's a lot of things that uh, that we're working on at MCDM. And we are lucky in that our boss, Matt Colville, likes to talk about everything as soon as we develop it. Sometimes, and then we throw it away. Um, yeah. uh, so we don't have an NDA or anything like that. Uh, so uh, we're actually developing an RPG right now. And I'm going to talk probably a, a little bit about that when we get into the the main topic but that's mm -hmm. something i'm really excited um to share with people because i'm enjoying playing it with it which is probably important as somebody who's designing the game so, this yeah. is true all right yeah. well i can't wait to hear more about that but first well, let's get to some news the yes. any award nominees were released if you yes. don't know the any awards uh are done through EN World, or they started with EN World, they've become their own thing, and they celebrate role-playing games of all shapes and sizes. The ceremony itself is held on August 4th uh, during Gen Con at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you're at Gen mm -hmm. Con, you can stop by and watch the awards being given out. They take, they take nominations, and then they have uh, five judges, and these judges go through all of the nominees, they choose finalists, and then those finalists are voted on by the public. So that's how these that is, awards yeah. work. Yep. Did you have? Yeah, any... it's great. Yeah, it's 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 great. I think it's a it's a cool process. That one of the things that I think makes it interesting is the fact that there is this judges thing that happens, mm -hmm. and then all the nominees are put up and linked and stuff. So be, even just being nominated is good for an author mm -hmm. uh, or a publisher or an artist or a podcaster, whatever it may be, because it gets people to check out the thing that you are doing. 
Um, you know, uh, voting, uh, it's, it, I don't know any good way to do an industry award no. because it, there's always voting involved and it's hard to like, for instance, rating, uh, journeys for, through the radiant Citadel, which is a beautiful and amazing book is nominated. And I'm going to guess most of the people voting have heard of that as opposed mm. to a lot of the other things on the list. Right. Sure. Um, so it becomes hard to beat some of the more well-known stuff, especially because what are you going to do? Read a thousand pages to figure out the best product, right? Like it's mm -hmm. it's hard. Um, but so being nominated itself is a huge uh, boost for people, and 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 great. It's a great list for if you're a publisher or you're a fan of RPGs to check out. Like this is what a bunch of people who read a lot of RPGs think is really good. Um, and so it's, it's very helpful for me to look at something and be like, ah, I should, I should really check out swords of the serpentine. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and do it. And also there's already a few judges spotlight winners, including one from ghost fire gaming, uh, that I saw. That's um, true. so, uh, yeah. Dungeons of Drakenheim ghost fire gaming. Uh, yeah. so I, d I just wanted to shout that one out because I don't want Sean to seem like a shill. Uh, oh. so, uh, I, I'm I'm fine shilling things that I believe in, and <laughs> yeah. You know, while it was published by Ghostfire, it was written by the Dungeon Dudes, um, you know, Monty Martin and Kelly uh, McLaughlin, and they're amazing streamers, podcasters, players, DMs, and creators. And I only work tangentially on the book, so I can honestly say, you know, congratulations to. To everybody at Ghostfire who worked on it, and to to uh, Kelly and to Monty because they're they're amazing folks. Absolutely. Uh, well, a tangential yeah. congratulations from me to you. Then there you go. Uh, other uh, judge spotlight winners were One Breath Left from Stout Stout Press by Ian Howard, um, Void sixteen eighty AM from Bannerless Games. The author is Ken Lowry. Uh, Moonlight on Roseville Beach, a queer game of disco and cosmic horror by R. Rook Studio. Several authors there, uh, some who I've worked with before, uh, Rob Abrazado, uh, Sharang Biswas, Aaron Roberts, uh, and a oh, yeah. bunch of great creators. And the final one oh. was Faycraft by Exalted Funeral, the author uh, Will Purvis. So congratulations yes. to those people who were called out by the judges as uh, notable contributions to the RPG industry this year. Yeah, congratulations. It's a it's a huge list and it's a you know, uh, these are really awesome products that people should yeah. check out. Uh, Void 1680 AM is a solo RPG about building a playlist, right? right? So that you can find some really, really cool stuff just by looking at the judges spotlight here. Yep. And then there's a zillion uh, awards too um, yep. that I think I'm really excited about. Yep. So it's great to to see, like like James said, it's great to see the publicity being, sh the, the spotlight being shown on other RPGs, other types of RPGs, small ones, podcasts, digital versions uh like blog uh, content all of the all of that is covered uh, by the any award so you can check out the list in our show notes there is a link to all of that yes exactly go check it out there's a lot of really things that are worth your time uh mm -hmm. over there to uh, to check out so including games for kids if you're looking mm -hmm. for rpgs to play for kids there is stuff um and there's like best free product and stuff like that. So really go check it out. Um, yep. Yeah. 
I will say uh, they seem to have stumbled in the best podcast category, though. Uh, yeah. There's no no mastering dungeons, so I will be boycotting. Oh. Uh, I'll be boycotting until they recognize the accomplishments of Duke University here on this podcast. There you go. Uh, in the in the NAAC uh, in the NAA oh, NCAA uh, NCAA. Thank you very yeah. much. Uh, you can see I know a lot about basketball. Too. There you go. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of the Any Awards, uh, that happens at Gen Con, and Gen Con is just around the corner. Less than a month now, August 3rd through 6th in Indianapolis at the Indiana Convention Center at Lucas Oil Stadium and at nearly all of the hotels, uh, ballrooms, and meeting rooms around the convention center. There is content as far as the eye could see. And also, if you are not uh, traveling, if you are not attending places in person there is gen con online registration awesome. for the live event has been going on for a while but uh, registration for the events for gen con online just went live yesterday um as of wow. record this recording so you still probably can get into online events and get into online games if you so choose you can just go to gencon.com and do that and for the first time ghostfire gaming will have a small presence um, we oh, will have awesome. a we will have a small booth. I will be there some of the time. I don't quite know my work schedule there yet, but please do stop by the booth and say hi. We will also, through our good friends at the World of Game Design, be uh, offering games in many of our worlds: Grim Hollow, the World of the Ethereal Expanse. Uh, there's one more. What am I missing? Uh, I don't know if we're running any Aurora stuff there or not, but we will have several games being offered so you can sign up and play. That's awesome. You should check that out. Uh, by the way, if you can meet Sean, it's great to meet in person. Get him to sign something. Get him to sign a book uh, mm. or, uh, or a T-shirt uh, mm. or your face. Um, I will. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, I'll say it now. If you send to me a picture your of face? your face signed by <laughs> Sean Merwin at Gen Con, I will send you a, a free PDF of something. Oh, boy. Uh, tweet it at me or, or, or reach me. Uh, if Twitter doesn't exist anymore, we'll find it otherwise. <laughs> you yeah. can, I'll trust Sean to tell me. <laughs> I hope I don't have to sign anyone's face because that would be super embarrassing. Um, and then I will have to have you sign my face and... My face could probably fit a lot of signatures, but it might be a little <laughs> awkward for my family as they're going to be there as well. Sure. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, people only have tattoo pens at Gen Con, so it'll be true. a permanent it's, signature. Yeah. 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 Uh, speaking of awkward things, Baldur's <laughs> Gate 3 is coming. We talked about this last week, but James had some more information to share with us about Baldur's Gate 3 and what we know about it. So, yeah, uh, there was the panel from Hell last week, which was this big panel that uh, Larian Studios, who's making Baldur's Gate 3, showed off. There were interviews with some WotC staff. Dan Dillon uh, appeared, which was uh, really cool, in, in uh, like in one of their videos that they had and, and was talking about the game and Baldur's Gate and stuff. And so there's a lot of new features. So, that you know, they've done various alphas and betas of the game that people have played and experienced and so but there's a ton of new stuff in there um there are deeper like character creation is a much deeper system uh you can create a custom character at start or you can 
pick one of their pre-made characters who will have like an origin story that runs deeper through there's 174 hours of cutscenes, and i assume that's not in one playthrough right that's like <laughs> hey, if you play through with this character you get a bunch of these cutscenes. you yeah. get through but that's like twice the amount of content in game of thrones right if you were to try to hunt down and watch every cutscene, so there's there's a lot of love going into this and there's a lot of things that have been done that seem like they're not written within the rules of D&D, but they are things that happen often in D&D. So, like, warlock players can talk to their patron, um, you know, uh, which is a thing that, again, the rules of D&D don't necessarily give you a lot of ways to do that. Um, but it is a thing that almost happens in any campaign with a warlock, right? Um, and one of those things is there's a lot of romance options, which D&D is not a game that I would that I typically play a lot of romance in. There are a lot of role-playing games built for romance, but they've created this sort of um, system in these stories where you can have different romances with different NPCs and characters who join your party and stuff like that. And there was one, Sean, that made headlines. It, because you could romance yeah. Druid. It's true. We're going to call this Druid's Gone Wild Shape. And... <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, you can have sort of uh, a, speaking of, you know, owlbears, you, you can sort of have romance as druid wild shape things. And, and it got a, a note in uh, Kotaku.com's you know, news site where it talks mm -hmm. about that. And, you know, this is something that people who've played D&D over the years have kind of awkwardly joked about forever as soon as wild shape became a druid feature you know back in the days of yore people would be like yeah that's 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 funny um let's not talk about it ever again and now we get to talk about it again uh, so <laughs> if you're if you're into that more power to you yes yeah and the the apparently said scene uh of romance was uh was live streamed and also got larian studios uh banned from uh instagram um nice. so uh so proceed at your own caution google at your own caution uh but uh, but it was big news this week um that that is also part of the game there you go and we will be looking for that launch which i think uh we said august 3rd for pc and then august, uh, september 6th on PlayStation 5. So there you go. If yeah, my memory exactly. serves, which it rarely yeah. does. Uh, last but not least, we'll talk yeah, about... All, oh. uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, all things aside, it does seem to be a very deep and well-made game. Um, uh, putting a pin in the bear. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it seems like it's going to be cool. <laughs> Every Everyone who I've talked to who has played the beta version has raved about you know the game. So yeah. I, I hope it fills that niche of really good D&D games that we haven't had a contender for in in quite some time. Quite some time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So we'll see. It should be a it, it'll be interesting. It, could we have in the same year a good D&D &D movie and a good D&D &D video game? That would be truly wild, Sean. It it <laughs> would be. It would be uh something that I would have never predicted to have happen in my lifetime. No. So there you go. It's, yeah, it is close to the end of the world, everybody. Get ready. <laughs> Get ready for it. <laughs> uh, crowdfunding and releases. I want to highlight Dragonlance Shadow of the Black Rose by 
our friends at Dragonlance Nexus. They have a great Dragonlance uh, podcast and content there, and they've put this adventure source book up. And what's what, what's most notable, uh, other than it being by a you know group of great creators, is that they have a forward by James Louder, who oh, wrote uh, Knight of the Black Rose, Inspector of the Black Rose, back in the day, you know, as a Dragonlance novel. So they are pulling content from those novels, and they have in the in this product. It's an adventure. It's got rules that you can use. Uh, it hit number one on the DMs Guild for a few days, which is rare for like an adventure to do, to overcome the the evergreen things that are always uh, popular there. And uh, they have uh, sort of a biography of Lord Soth and all the adventures and all the novels that 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 evil villain has been in. And so, if you get a chance, check it out. It's eight ninety nine, I believe, but it's got a lot of great content. And uh, you could do worse on the DM skill. I will leave it at that. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's a uh, that's great. Uh, I'm excited to uh, to see a product like that up there. Dragon mm-hmm. Lance is awesome. Yep. And it also acts as a grand finale to the hardcover book, the hardcover adventure. If you want to sort of extend it a bit, so it's for higher level characters dealing, obviously, with with Lord Soth. Uh, there is an end in sight to the Ethereal Expanse uh, Kickstarter. It ends on Friday night. So at midnight Friday, going into Saturday, you uh, you can still back, but we're running out of time. So I hope you have enjoyed our talks about it, not only here, but on the Eldritch Lorecast, as we've highlighted what it's all about. So give it you have one last chance to check it out. But what I want to talk about is this Flea Mortals. So the Kickstarter ended. You've been working day and night, blood, sweat, and tears, I'm sure, on this. And I think the release date is in sight. Is that true? Uh, Yes. So the release date is in sight. I don't know. It's a good question about how public we're being with things about this because, again, No, no, but we're targeting the beginning of August um, okay. for the release of the PDF, and then backers and other folks who got their books should be getting their hardcovers starting probably in September. Okay. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the, the we're talking to the printer right now. The PDF is in accessibility, which means it's been through layout. Um, so it's we're we're just writing up a lot of alt text and stuff like that, and then wow. the hope is to to get into the hands of folks who backed and pre-ordered. Um, soon it is a big 5e monster book Um, it's got 339 stat blocks in it uh, and it is a a lot of it is our take on classic creatures so Mm -hmm. instead of adding a bunch of creatures we've redone a lot of the creatures and we've added a bunch too Um, so things like uh, we have uh, our take on dragons and wyverns and goblins and orcs and uh humans and all kinds of things and we've given you sort of in the 4e style when you would turn to in the 4e monster manual you would turn to goblins and there were like you know 8 to 12 different goblin stat blocks um we have done that with a lot of the monster entries especially for things like humanoids where it's like well you would have you know we give you 12 different humans that you can use to drop into your game we give you a bunch of different orcs a bunch of different goblins a bunch of different 
um, frog folk uh, that you can can drop in. And so that is to sort of help you flesh out those encounters, keep them interesting. And, and that was a big thing that we did. I know I, I think I've talked about this book before on this podcast. So I won't get too much into it. But it's really exciting. And also with that is a separate book of Lairs is coming um, called Where Evil Lives. Um, and so each boss monster uh, in the book we have given a lair to. It's 22 different lairs with unique magic items and stuff like that. Uh, and that will be coming in PDF as well to all of the folks who backed and pre-ordered. So look forward to that. It's a lot of content. Um, we accidentally wrote two books when we meant to write one. So how long have you been working on this uh, <laughs> book? When when did you like sit down and like make the outline and say, okay, we're going to be doing this? That's a great question. So since the end of 2021 really back okay. half of 2021 is when yep. we started this um the first play test uh was happening in december of 2021 and we had outlined and stuff before that but even before that we were making products because we knew we wanted to have like companion creatures in this book right. so we released the beast heart which is a custom class and has companion yep. rules and stuff in it before that so really you could say we've been working on it since 2020 if you wanted to <laughs> yeah that 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 tracks uh it's mm -hmm. it's been a process i am sure um so yes. god, yeah, god you bless know a little thing about making mm. 5e monster books <laughs> little a little bit little too much now but mm -hmm. it is so you're gonna when when does flea mortals 2 start <laughs> uh, yes and then the weeping begins yeah uh no it's a it's a great question we've really uh, i've had a blast and i certainly learned a ton mm -hmm. about making monsters on this book um so uh the, the we'll, we'll probably take a lot of what we learned in flea mortals and we will apply it to creating monsters for the mcdm rpg so that'll be the next yeah, yeah. big monster book we make is the, mm -hmm. the flea mortals version of whatever we're do whatever we're going to call our rpg awesome so. <laughs> well that is a perfect transition into our main topic this week so let's get to that so our main topic this week is going to be making 5e content versus make them versus making custom role-playing games and we have a question from a listener that sort of just begins to touch on this topic this is from jim klingler via our patreon discord and there is conversation happening literally right now based on this topic in our discord so if you want if you want to be involved in conversations like this join our patreon you can join our discord and you can take part in these conversations so this is jim's question i've been thinking about monster save proficiencies one of my groups is level 12, and I'm noticing a pattern with higher CR monsters that aren't legendary. All of the proficiencies seem to be nerfed, making player control spells super effective. Fun for the players, but less fun for me. I also would argue powerful control spells get boring for the players if they succeed all the time. I can always add legendary resistances, but overuse of this tool can frustrate my players. I'm wondering if folks here fiddle monster save proficiencies to beef up the challenge for higher level PCs. Any thoughts? And this question is one of probably 10 million questions <laughs> that you need to ask yourself when you're designing not just a new role-playing game, but even if you're making 5e compatible content. 
And a question like this comes to us as we break down what goes into role-playing game creation. So let's, we'll table that particular question for now and get into this question of 5e content versus custom role-playing games. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you, James, sort of lead this discussion in whatever direction you want to start. And we can go from there because we've got notes up in our show notes, but they're very general and you could go a lot of different ways with this discussion. And I trust us as creators to do exactly that. Yes. Yeah. As creators and ramblers, uh, mm-hmm. we will, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll be all over the map here as we, we talk about this, but I think, you know, the, I, there is a big difference between creating for a game system that already exists and creating your own game system from scratch and both have their merits right both are cool and fun and both have a laundry list of design and business reasons that you would do one or the other right and and so like for instance on the business side which i think is is good to touch on one reason you would create for 5e is because we are in an industry where it's not coke and pepsi it is coke and then everything else combined is like maybe dr pepper right you know like so there's a good reason to go make stuff for D because they have not just the market share they control the market in a lot of ways um and that's one reason that it's easy to find people who want to pick up your thing uh it is a game that because it has so much money flowing into it it is designed rigorously right it's it's play tested really hard it's got this team of full-time designers who look at it and try to make the best possible version of D that they can make um and that sort of saves you a lot of work whereas if you're making your own system you are the design team yep. uh in in many cases and you may not have the support you have to build that audience you have to convince people to play it right that the, all of those are no small feats when it comes to uh, creating something so those are sort of the the biggest business reasons i mean D also has like a zillion other things that support it if you want to mm-hmm. sell your product on roll 20 it's a lot easier to do that because they have the infrastructure for D or fantasy yep. grounds or foundry if you want to uh, put it up in a marketplace and not create your own marketplace well good thing that there's the dm's guild good thing that there's you know this um of course the other business reason that makes it hard is that like we, we don't know, right? Uh, we just had this whole thing happen with the OGL. And I think we do know with 5e, at least, that, hey, you're covered by Creative Commons and mm-hmm. you, they're never going to touch that again. And that's great. But what if when 5e, 2e comes out, it is not as compatible as uh, everyone is saying it could be? And it yeah. turns out that everybody switches over and plays that and nobody's going to use your supplement then, right? right. Like, and. 5e2e let's say has no open license or doesn't for a year and a half the way 5e did when it launched um there could be a a lot of things there that means parts of your of the game you're designing for are out of your control business wise too yeah um that's that's my business rant sean do you have anything to add on the business side on the business side not really the only other thing i would add and you sort of touched on this is the people can fall in love with a system so 5e taken out of the fantasy genre 
and put into a different genre can gain traction because people understand the system. So you get aspergenesis, right? It's the 5e game, but it's not sword and sorcery. It's sort of science fiction fantasy. So that uh, helps people say, oh, okay, I understand this. I roll a die, I add a modifier. I'm going up against a, a difficulty class, a target number. I, I've got that. That's why you see a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games, because it's a system that people understand. You roll two dice, 2d6, you compare it to this chart. Do I succeed? Do I fail? Or do I succeed with this complication where I get to choose something or something automatically happens? And people understand that. Yeah. So it, it, then, it's not just the it's not just the branding; it's also the underlying system that people can really enjoy. Yeah, that learning curve to, to eliminate that learning curve, I think, is very helpful and attractive to a lot of players. Um, and it makes sense, right? Like a lot of people just want to play; they don't want to spend two hours a week learning something for a month before they can play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's often how it feels, especially if your first game, like many of us, is D and D. D and D's a very complicated game that has three core rule books that are 900 pages and yeah. uh, even just the player's handbook before you get to the spells is a lot of stuff to read yeah. um so there's you know i uh, and i think that can be intimidating and if you know D empowered by the apocalypse you can play hundreds of games yeah. right why would you learn another one if you don't really like learning rules fair right um yeah, so I I think one of the things, too, that is true, though, is if you are going to pick 5e as a system to design something in, be it medieval fantasy, be it, um, you know, be it a superhero game or a sci-fi game, you should take a page out of Esper Genesis's book, which is that D&D is a game that primarily for many groups and primarily supported in the rules, you are fighting monsters right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so if you want to create a game that is about romancing bear druids you might be better off creating your own system because you're going to have to do a lot to make D D work to be a romance or a criminal investigation or a uh you know even a horror game right i've played a lot of curse of strahd and Curse of Strahd is a horror for about the first five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you run into your first group of wolves or zombies or vampire spawn and you tear them to shreds. And you're like, oh, right, we're superheroes. I totally forgot that that we are able to survive. Oh, wait, Fred died? Cool. I cast uh, Revivify. Great. We're back on track, right? And so, like, keeping in mind that there's a genre that D&D really supports. Mm -hmm. And that is transferable to like superheroes right it's Mm -hmm. it's sort of this heroic fantasy game that you could transfer to superheroes it doesn't translate as well to some other things and so you want to keep that in mind with your rule set yeah so we have some categories here that will sort of help serve as the overview for what you need to consider when you're designing for an existing system and we're going to take 5e as that system because most Mm -hmm. people know it um Versus those same categories when you consider creating your own custom game. So the, the first category is going to be the audience. Who, what audience are you designing for? The audience that you design for will have expectations. Uh, so as we already said, 5e has its own audience already. 
it has its own expectations. So people, when they're playing 5e, will ex- will expect to roll a d20 and compare it to a number and generally a success or a failure. And in combat, that those success or failures will be smaller transactions within the larger combat. And those sorts of things are going to be expected. When you create your custom game, who is that going to be for? Because those expectations will necessarily uh, guide your design. All of the things that we are about to talk about <laughs> will be answered partially by who is your audience. Are your audience teenagers who have grown up with cell phones and watching a particular type of entertainment in a particular kind of way because they will have different uh, expectations than 80-year-olds who have uh, you know, grown up playing just uh, basic D&D. Yeah. It's really interesting. If you go back and look at some of the old articles, if you can find them, about the D&D Next playtest, right? They were sort of very open about... Mm-hmm. This is for people who have played all editions of D&D. We want to see if we can make something that's going to appeal to people who've played fourth and people who played third and people who played first. And can we make this game? And and they were not sure, right? But it was basically like, we want to try to make a game that is the quintessential version of D&D. And it will be all things D&D to people, right? That was their design goal because, and that was sort of their target audience. It has grown way beyond that audience for a lot of reasons some of it being you know a rigorously designed system some of it being stranger things and critical role Uh, whatever it may be there's a lot of factors that came together and have really made this uh, system successful and i think one thing when you set out for your audience and and this is something that we're carrying through in everything is like uh so like we're making an rpg right now and it is a cinematic tactical heroic fantasy game right so we have been explicit in that and that helps guide us like who is our audience for that right okay Mm -hmm. so if we want it to be tactical and cinematic and heroic we know from the beginning we want the players who like to play games on a grid right Mm -hmm. that it's and it's fine then because we've identified that as our audience it's fine if you don't like to play on a grid but it does mean that you may not play our game and we have to be okay with that as designers because we're making that choice right um we want people who enjoy no surprise heroic over-the-top fantasy stuff right Mm -hmm. because it's going to be that like we we're not looking for this is not a game about counting torches uh Mm -hmm. and and uh and counting rations and mapping out the dungeon that you are in you know as a player to find your way back out i love games like that don't get me wrong but that's not what this particular game is so we sort of took a stance and said like this is the kind of thing we want to do with our game Mm -hmm. and that has helped us find our audience and answer other questions that i'm sure will come up oh yeah so there you go a perfect example of the difference between the existing system and the system that that we're creating uh so next we need to look, and this sort of all melts together in some ways, the setting in the genre. What's the setting going to be? What genre are we trying to write in? Uh, 5e, the system that it was built for, is this medieval sword and sorcery, heroic fantasy 
system in a setting with no technology or very limited technology. Magic sort of can replace technology, but not completely unless you're talking about Eberron. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and if we had built 5e for Eberron specifically, as opposed to generic uh, fantasy in the Forgotten Realms, then the design might be slightly different. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's you what you need that. to think of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wizards does that themselves. When they change a setting, right, they put out different rules, you know, or, or little supplements that will go on top, right? Like, hey, for, uh, you know, for uh, Dragonlance, your character is going to start with a feat if you use these Dragonlance backgrounds because we expect you to be a little bit more heroic mm-hmm. in Dragonlance and also because we're testing things for 5e2e. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, so there's that sort of expectation, and that's where that comes in, where if you were going to make a game for 5e, and it was a film noir where you're like a hard-boiled detective, that's going to be a very sort of different game than D&D. And that's when you might say, I think I might want a different system here because I want something that's going to make investigation more interesting, more of a mm-hmm. game for my players. And I want something where it's like, yeah, this guy could get, you know, a detective could get hit by a gunshot and die, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to I could fall... 200 feet and live after you know sixth right. level or whatever right. it is exactly so. and 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 that's a great point right so let's break that down that that detective that noir uh detective sort of thing in those stories in that genre the the main character generally fails constantly yes they're constantly behind in the action they're trying to catch up to things that are happening they get to what they think will be a breakthrough in their case and the the person they're going to question lies dying in the alley before they can get there to talk to them however they find a matchbook that will then help them right so it's this feeling of always trying to never quite knowing the truth, always trying to catch up, always failing, but still persevering. And that 5e doesn't doesn't want that. 5e doesn't want that to happen. They want you to succeed on roles. They want that. And then if you talk about combat, then that's, again, totally, as soon as you bring gunplay into it, it's, it's a completely different uh totally different yeah yeah and it and you know it's one of the things is if you think about it at the basic level in 5e you are you are active you're the instigators in a lot of Mm cases when you're the heroes you invade the dungeon right like Mm -hmm. you go into the home and things whereas in a detective story you're reactive the Mm -hmm. things are happening and you're and, and it's only in the moment when you finally get ahead of it that the story really ends because now you've figured it out you've figured out the mystery you've finally gotten ahead of it and and now things resolve as opposed to D&D where it's like we are going to take matters into our own hands and and kick some butt here mm-hmm. which works in a lot of genres right it it's not limited to a fantasy setting mm-hmm. um but it does mean that thinking about those guiding stars and the stories you want to tell are really important when you sit down to make your system and i i'm sure this is one thing i want to caveat i'm sure there's a lot of 5e products people can point to and say like this person made mysteries work this person made blah 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 Mm -hmm. work and i think that that's great too right i i think but that person did a ton of work Mm -hmm. in order to make those things work and they built 
probably their own system that is on top of D&D, right? We did right. that with Warfare and Kingdoms of Warfare and Strongholds and Followers. and So it's definitely possible, and it's fun to do. Uh, but at that point, you're basically making your own game. It's Yeah, it's true. That's true. Yeah. The, the next point on our list is conflict resolution. So yes. stories are about conflict. Stories are about... The, the, <laughs> I, I, I came through like creative writing and teaching creative writing. So there's all these theories about, you know, what is a story? What makes a story? And one thing that it's... They sort of call it like the masculine story, which is it's all about conflict. Whereas if you get out of that system, it's all about connection versus disconnection. It's about people coming together, then people separating. And uh, both of those things are true in conflict resolution, where we want in our story to understand, here's the conflict, here's the problem, how do we solve it? What is the resolution? And so your system, whether it's a 5e system where we already know what the conflict resolution uh, system is, if you're going to do something different, how do you do it? Um, what is the system that you're going to put in to tell us as the players and even as the game master, here's the conflict, here's how you resolve it? Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that's a big part of, we were talking about that binary pass fail earlier mm -hmm. and this also sort of relates to jim's question um mm -hmm. that kicked off this segment and it, it, that is a big part of conflict resolution in D D is do you do the thing or do you not right mm -hmm. do you hit or do you miss do you are you charmed or are you not charmed right there's no uh, well I, you get to control my move but i get to control my action on my turn because i'm half charmed right mm -hmm. um or you get to move me right now as a reaction but on my turn i get to do this even though i'm right like there's we don't have that gradation and it's a good thing because it's already a complicated game especially when it comes to combat right um that would make it so granular it would probably be very easy to break um and uh, but i do think about like uh if you want to tell a story that is like a star wars story right your conflict resolution should probably involve luck it should involve forces bigger than you, like the force, mm -hmm. right? That should be kind of baked into the mechanics so that the players can feel that. If you're uh, if you're doing Lord of the Rings, you want things to be, uh, you want to feel like, hey, when I make a decision, maybe there's an easier way to do things. But if I take that easy way, it's corrupting my soul a mm -hmm. little bit, right? Like I'm feeling the pressure of the ring and the shadow and the enemy and and that sort of thing. And I think Dread is a system that does this great. So Dread is this horror system that we've talked about on this show before. Mm -hmm. But essentially, you build a Jenga tower, and the way you do things is you uh, you play Jenga, right? When your player wants to do something, you grab a block, you put it to the top of the, the tower. If you knock over the tower, your character dies. It's made for really horror one-shots, horror movies. Think about mm -hmm. that, where most people are dead by the end. Yep. Um, it's great because you feel that tension, right? And people have since used the tower to do stories about romance on a first date because the tension isn't that different. The nerves aren't that different from like a horror movie, right? Yeah. Um, and so thinking about how can you make the players feel like they are in the genre of story you want to tell, like they, like you are playing these kinds of stories, I think is really, really important. And your conflict resolution system 
is where that comes into play. So if you're doing D&D, you should know that it's like, hey, it's pass fail. It's sort of made for this pulpy action. It either happens or it doesn't, and then we move on. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. With that dreaded D20 die, which gives you a 5% chance per side increase or (laughs) decrease uh, as you move up or down the the scale. I, I always think of the terrible RPG the one where you tear the character sheet yes. uh, as as a great conflict resolution system that uh, you know, shows you getting weaker and weaker as as you go through the story and you you succeed you know very much at the beginning but as you get less and less actual physical character sheet as you tear parts away uh, becoming uh, less able to muster the the force of will or the equipment or whatever you use the sheet for to be able to continue to succeed as these conflicts throw themselves at you yes it's great and it's one of those one of the best things about that game is if you are going to basically be done tear your character sheet to shreds and and have no character left you can wad up what is mm-hmm. left of your sheet and throw it at the GM. Yep. And if you hit the GM, you get to decide how your character goes out, right? Like, so mm-hmm. you can take the big bad with you or you can, that's really fun. You can do the same thing in Dread. You can knock mm-hmm. over, if you intentionally knock over the tower, you get to decide how your character goes out as opposed yep. to the GM narrating it. It's cool. Yep. And as Teos and I have talked about other games, we've talked about other methods of conflict resolution with fate, the, the fate dice plus your fate points and all of those. So you, you're going to have to decide how you are going to get through those uh, conflicts and how to resolve those using what rules. Now I'm going to switch it up a little bit here. The next yes. point is character creation. So in any game, you are going to have to al- you have allow the player to play a character. Now this mm-hmm. could be in D&D, you know, you have a species or background or whatever you want to call that used to be called race and still is sometimes uh, heritage whatever Uh, you have a class you have a background you have these things that all come together choices you make to build your character you have to decide how complex you want that to be what will be involved in that so that it can interact with the conflict resolution system in a way that makes sense yeah yeah exactly and you have to think about so this is a huge point of contention when you're designing for 5a if you're designing character options right um and it sort of depends on how much of 5e are you using right so if you're doing esper genesis you're creating all your classes from the ground up right if you're doing hey i am adding this but i still want you to be able to be a cleric or a fighter or a rogue or a right you need to think about those existing options and this is where things get tricky is that D, particularly in its combat pillar has a lot of rules and options already mm-hmm. you have 13 classes that all go to level 20 right mm-hmm. it's a lot of options and you can multi-class Uh, which means that there are near infinite combinations of characters you could create. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we create stuff at MCDM 4 or 5e, 
we do a lot of rigorous playtesting because there are so many things, right? There's so many spells that your character mm -hmm. could take. There's so many feats now your character could take just from official options where it's almost impossible for one person to create a class with a couple of subclasses and then say, okay, this is going to fit in the game and have it not break the game somehow because it's mm -hmm. like, well, actually, if I multi-class here or if I, I become a wizard and I take this spell and then I take this spell and this class feature that you've created, which you never intended to go together but mm -hmm. can go together because of the way the game works mm -hmm. means that we have now broken the game and made it unfun for everybody. Okay, so we got to go back to the drawing board and figure this out. And it's uh, that can be very frustrating. And so if you're using 5e, one thing I would recommend is think about that structure and think about do you can you change that to suit you? Do you need 20 levels for your mm -hmm. game? That's a lot of levels. How many, how many, Sean, do you think of the millions of D&D players, how many 20th level rangers are actively playing in a game every month. Um, yeah, not a lot, and we have we have yeah. you know evidence to back up this that most campaigns end by fourth level, much less eighth or tenth or twelfth. Or, you know, and it's it, the the slope is steep down about how many players continue to play those characters uh, up until those higher levels. Yeah, exactly. And so it becomes a thing where you're like if you're if you're working within the 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 bounds of D&D &D and using the classes that are there, there are things where you'll be like, "Oh, well this character should get this ability at 7th level." Well, actually that's a 15th level barbarian ability and and so now you're eating the barbarian's lunch too early. And it's mm -hmm. like, "Well, it would be balanced though if I look at yes, but, you know, so that's a big thing to keep in mind. And a lot of that has to do with D&D's target audience. D&D's target audience exactly. expects a game that goes to 20 levels, right? They expect certain spells to be on there. And so that's one reason why what Jim is talking about is a little frustrating in terms of monster proficiencies is because I think it is sort of... I would say a lot of people don't like it when the creature they control, be it a PC or NPC, is charmed or paralyzed or stunned, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet people expect that to be part of the game because it's part of the game's legacy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's this weird place you can find yourself in when you're designing in 5e where you're like, I got to contend with this thing that I don't like. And it, I, I either, to change it, I either need to create a bunch of caveats or I'm basically creating my own system now anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a big, big part of it is in character creation. Uh, th that's where you can see a lot of those sort of frustrations when you're working in 5e. Mm -hmm. So the next part I've put in is the story flow. And what I mean by that is you have all of these other parts coming together but a story comes out the other end of this process how yeah. smoothly does that story flow now some people don't care about the story per se for them whether they hit or miss is the story but <laughs> there are also you know, other elements that come together that we talked about the you know, character arcs and and campaign arcs so the, the question that you have to answer is how much time, how much energy, how much thought needs to go from all of this mechanical stuff that we're doing 
to getting to the story that comes out, the artifact of play, if you will, of of all of these rules coming together and all of the conflict resolution systems and the character creation and the rules. And will it be pleasing to the audience and will it resemble the setting or the genre that you have built for it? Yeah, and that's a huge piece of of this this is one of your really your guiding stars i feel like for the structure of your game and so when we in D D, we look at D D. D D slows down when you get into combat right mm-hmm. it, it because that is a very important part of the game and we want the play by play the moment by moment it is slower than real time Right. You're mm-hmm. you, in a video game. Often when you have combat, that is not the case. It's not mm-hmm. slower than real time. Um, so it's really the rules are saying, OK, this is really an important thing. Everything slows down. Let's pay attention. Whereas something like travel or resting mm-hmm. happens faster, much, much faster than real time, typically, because that's not what the game is necessarily about most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when when you are creating your game, um, you want to say to yourself, what is my game about? And so if your game is a lot about combat and fighting monsters or, or fighting villains, right, and everything else can be handled with a pass-fail check in terms of the story, right, then you you have got yourself uh, 5e might work great for you. Mm-hmm. If what you want to do is have a game where, like, uh, so, for instance, Blades in the Dark, right, has this system because it's about heists, it has this system for flashbacks for like, oh, I, I actually bribed that guard before we got here. And so let's do a flashback where we role play that, right? That's the flow of the story where you can adjust it and things like that. And so one of the big things, and this is the, one of the fun parts about making a game, go consume a lot of media. Mm-hmm. That North Star, what is your game about? Is it, you know, is your game a Western? Go watch a bunch of Westerns and see like, mm-hmm. how is how are those stories paced? How are they told? Read a bunch of comic books if you're going to do a superhero game. How are those stories paced, right? Mm-hmm. And and get into the, okay, and then you'll be able to figure out, all right, so what should my game have? Well, it should have flashback mechanics, or these are the typical kinds of scenes we see, and this is how they're linked together and how they play. I feel like that's really important, and you can create mechanics that reward that, right? D&D pushes, if you were to play the traditional way with uh, experience points. Yep. Right. It pushes you into the dungeon to fight that monster because that's the way you level up. (laughs) It's true. Uh, So that, yeah, you can use those carrots uh, to get people to engage with the game the way you want them to engage. Yep. Another way to look at it is to ask yourself, the, the party has just entered the cave and there are a group of goblins. We will not know the result of this for a half an hour. Yeah. Is that the game you want? Mm-hmm. If And for some people, they might say no. But then when you play it out, each individual action within that full half hour of combat is fun. So, yes, yeah. it's actually what I do want. The answer might be no, and you mean it. Yeah. Right? I want to make one role per character, and then we narrate what happens. And that's... Mm-hmm. that's where we want our our focus to be is on some other aspect of it. And that's okay too, but you don't want a 5e system for that. Yes, 100%. Yeah, that's a that's a really good way to think of that, right? Is 
this is what's going these are the things that are going to happen how how quickly do i want them to happen and what is it like you know shadow dark is an incredible system in that like torches burn out after one hour of real time mm-hmm. well, that's that's really cool and it's a cool way to keep the flow of the story going and make players feel that urgency mm-hmm. in the story right so thinking about how are your mechanics going to get people to engage with the game you know tomb of horrors is very different if after an hour of time you're completely in the dark yes. as opposed to, you're not going to be touching everything with a 10-foot pole when you're mm-hmm. playing that way for sure for sure yeah that's that's a that's a marvelous point and i had a an addition to that and it just went right out of my head as as it as it often does but though no, that's cool <laughs> uh oh the the thing i was going to say is that sometimes you think it's a good idea and you will say okay this is how my game will work and people will say "Ooh, i love this and they will play it and they will enjoy it mm-hmm. and then it comes time for the next campaign and they'll be like you know what that was fun once but I don't know right. if we want to do that again. And so that's another another thing to think about. Is this a game that you're creating that you want people to come back to and play again and again and again? Or is it something you want to play? Oh, wait, this was a fun one-shot game, one fun shot, fun one-shot campaign. But now we're going to move on to something else because there's a reason people keep coming back to 5e. Right. right. There's a reason that people come and play Fate over and over or Powered by the Apocalypse games over and over because there is a, a satisfaction with the way that I'm going to go move on to the next one, that the game loop works. Right? Yes. The game loop works in a way that is pleasing and satisfying. So people will come back to that as opposed to one that might be fun but loses that satisfaction over repeated uses. Yes, absolutely. It, uh, and, and that's a, you know, and I think there are great one-shot games out there that you'll play and you'll remember forever. Mm-hmm. And you may not want to pick them up again. That's fine. There are films that I feel that way about where I'm like, that was a great film. And it, it you know, I'm done now. I don't need to see that film again because I had the experience and I'm not going to have that experience watching it again. And there are some films where it's like, I could, I will have just as much of the same emotion as I did the first time I watched this. Or it's fun to watch again to see what's different, right? Um, And I think that is a big part of role-playing games. The gameplay loop that Mm -hmm. we're talking about here is hugely, hugely important. D&D is a game that is built for campaigns, right? Mm -hmm. It's built for longer, even organized play. Organized play would be so much easier to run (laughs) if they said, you show up, you play this, and you never play that character again, right? Yeah. But it wouldn't be as fun for people who mm-hmm. are in organized play. And so everybody yeah. puts in the work to make these big campaigns because that's what D&D is. And if you're interested in a campaign, 5e is a great engine for mm-hmm. that because they have this system for leveling up over the course of 20 levels, finding really mm-hmm. good treasure, um, and advancing your character in a way that feels significant mm-hmm. um, as you, you level up. And yeah. that's really, really important. Yeah, and, and that's all built on this very simple game loop of you roll, you say what you're going to do. The DM tells you the situation. You roll the 20-sided die. You get the result. The situation changes. Boom. It's, it's relatively quick uh, and constantly dynamic. There, there's constant. Now, what the, what the game loop... Uh, requires is math though 
The game loop requires math both in terms of adding to that die, comparing it to a number, but also keeping track of hit points because that's what the game loop is intended to have characters or monsters doing damage to each other and reducing your hit points. And so the the game loop itself is quite quick. Uh, It's just that you go, you do this, next. You go, you do this, next. So that's the game loop. It's quick, but it also stacks onto each other to make it long, Uh, ironically. So that's why I think this sort of game loop is so attractive to people. It's because you can do a turn very quickly, but that turn is just one of many things that adds up to tell a longer story. Other games might have a game loop where you take longer to do a thing. So I'm going to roll these two six-sided dice. All right, that's quick. I add my number. I get... Now I look on this move, on this chart for Powered by the Apocalypse. Okay, so most of the time I'm going to get something between a six and a ten. So I have to make a choice. Now what's that choice going to be? Well, let's talk it through. If If it's the volley action in Dungeon World, then you have these choices. You could either do a little bit of damage... But you, or you could like do full damage but lose an arrow. I'm not getting this exactly right, but there's a laundry list of things you can choose. So now you're you're slowing down each turn, but the game goes more quickly overall, even though an individual game loop turn is longer. If that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah, I I think that is absolutely true. Uh, that you can see that. Yeah, it's it's definitely that you can you can you should really perfect your game loop to mm-hmm. a way that you want it when you're designing a, a game like this. And I do I like a game that has a pretty quick game loop like D and D, where you mm-hmm. say, "I see a thing, uh, I'd like to do that thing, make a roll, let's narrate what happens, right, mm-hmm. and, and continue on." But there's also there's the greater game loop of kill monsters get experience points and treasure mm-hmm. and level up too right and and so thinking of those loops of like what is the story loop what's the mm-hmm. the narrative loop and what is the the smaller gameplay loop i think are are really hugely important and how do they play into each other yeah yeah so so think about that as you decide what you're going to create for your game uh, mm-hmm. and you, you know you say roll narrate D&D does not necessarily benefit everyone from narration of every role because there are so many roles. Like one of the advice, one of the horrible bits of advice you get are, well, you can role play during combat by describing your, your thing. And I'm like, it's, that's cool for, for sometimes, but I'll tell you right now, I've seen players who narrate like every single thing they do. And if you're in a combat that lasts 12 rounds and there are seven seven players plus the DM is controlling four different monsters, if 11 people are describing everything they do for every role, unless they are the greatest storytellers ever, it gets a little repetitive. And it yeah. takes a combat that could last 10 minutes and makes it last 45 minutes. So, you know, be be wary of that. Understand that when you're creating your game. If you want it to spawn this narration, 
um, you're going to want to tweak it in a way that doesn't make it quite so repetitive. Yeah, one of the things that I loved about 4th edition was the powers had these evocative names and often a little description that would describe mm -hmm. what you would do. But just, you know, the fighter had a power called come and get it, where yeah. they would essentially draw every nearby enemy to them and then attack them all, right? And it was right. like, well, you can see just from that name, you know what's happening, right, right. In, in the narrative. And, and so that is definitely a thing that you want to keep in mind. And I, I am a proponent of you can role play in combat. And I think the way you do that is through the choices mm -hmm. you make in combat and not necessarily through describing everything, right? If you choose right. to run away, that's role play. Uh, if you choose to, uh, hey, I'm going to use my trident here over my uh, sword because it, it's more dramatic because my father gave me my trident. That's mm. role play, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's many ways to role play in combat that are not, uh, I'm going to give a 10 minute description every time I swing my sword. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's another point where all of these things come together is the choices that you give people to make during during the game loop, right? Oh, yeah. Because if you give somebody 30 different choices, A, is one choice obviously optimal? Because then it, those other 29 choices don't necessarily matter unless you give a mechanical or a story reason they're just going to do the thing that is the best choice for the most part. Yeah. If you only give four choices, but they are very dramatic, very uh, either story or mechanically important, that's better than giving 30 choices where there's an uh, obvious best. Yes. Just yes. in general. Yeah, that's totally true, right? Think of... Uh... Even when you look at feats in 5e, that's a great way to put it, right? Like, there are some feats where it's like, well, this is a must-have. And there are some mm -hmm. feats where it's like, well, why would I ever take this? I am a big proponent of eliminate the why would I ever take this or make them better. Right. Um, you know, you, you want things to feel equal and you want them to feel interesting. And I think one of the best points for to ask people to make a choice is in character creation instead of in that moment at the table mm -hmm. where it's going to slow things down, right? If you ask somebody, hey, when you level up, pick your spells, that's great. If it's, hey, I have all 300 spells in the player's handbook available to me and I have to pick which one to cast, mm -hmm. that's a, that may seem fun, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it right. is not as fun. Right. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when you try to make a super tactical game, it sounds good, but we're going to be keeping an eye on you, James and Tricasso. <laughs> We're going to be keeping an eye on you, and we're going to be judging you silently about your I, tactical game. And we I want to like know that really is it tactical? Really, is it? Yes. Yeah. So, so, and I should say, when we say tactical, one of the mm -hmm. things that we're talking about is we want a lot of movement mm -hmm. in combat. We don't want it mm -hmm. to be both sides run together and hack and slash until one falls. Right. We want it to be there's a reason to keep moving around and it feels dynamic. And so mm -hmm. uh, dynamic may be a better word, but positioning matters in that mm -hmm. sense. Okay. Not in the sense of like, well, now I need to decide, am I going to hit you in the knee or the elbow or the lip, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we're not getting that granular with it because that is not as fun. So it's not, it's still a role-playing game and it's yeah. not a war game. Okay. Uh, that's And that's an important thing to think mm -hmm. about when you're designing a game, right? Like that's a big important thing for us is, where is the line? Where are, Where is it too much? And that's why we put cinematic in there as well, right? Because right. we want it to be fun and like you're in a movie and not just 
Sean and I are at the table pushing things around like generals in World War II with, you know, with the mm -hmm. sticks as we try to figure out how do we, you know, take back the front or whatever. Yeah. And no, I wasn't alive then. So you can you were not. save, you were not. save no. all your jokes out there on the Internet. Thank you. <laughs> OK. And the final thing that we have here are pillars. So D&D &D came right out and it said these are the pillars of play, combat, exploration, and then social interaction became interaction, became role playing. Uh, right. <laughs> but. And, and, you know, we know that combat is the most important pillar because there are so many pages in the rules for it. It's yes. been a big part of the history. And it tends to be what most people gravitate toward, even if they like the other pillars. Role playing, again, time slows down and we spend a half hour on what would be 30 seconds of, of time in the game. Uh, so you have to ask yourself, what of, are those the same pillars that you want in your game? And if so, how much space, how much bandwidth, how much thought are you going to put on those in those other areas of character creation, of conflict resolution, of game loop, of story flow? How much of the, of the, the brunt, how much of the grist of this game is going to cover those pillars? And are you going to create completely new pillars? Are you going to have a romance pillar where... It is a combination of exploration and role playing. Are you going to have, or is it like combat and and right. role playing? Uh, is that how you do it? Right, a professional wrestling game might be yeah. a little bit different because of various things that you try to do. So you can ask yourself those: What pillars am I going to highlight, and how does it affect the rest of my design? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a big thing. Uh, we. I get when I talk about combat being uh, like an important part of D and D and and a pillar that I believe is weighed heavier than the mm -hmm. other two. Um, sometimes people online get upset mm -hmm. uh, and they're like, "Well, you need more rules for combat for combat to be fair." Is sort of like what they mm -hmm. they say, and I, I get where they're coming from for that. But that's because combat is very important in D and D, and so we <laughs> right. want it to be handled fair. And there are games that handle social interaction, right, where it might be like, we are going to spend a half hour on this conversation that in D&D &D would take five minutes mm -hmm. because of the way the rules work and because this is a game in the style of, you know, uh, Emily Bronte. Right. Uh, and, and it really matters the way that this is happening, right? There's a game called Bubble Gumshoe, mm -hmm. which is a gumshoe system, and it has some light rules for combat, but you're high school students. Mm -hmm. And so fighting gets you in a lot of trouble if you do it. Um, and so all of the rules there are about investigating mysteries and social interaction and, like, spreading rumors. There's this whole thing you can do called Throwdown where you, like, spread rumors throughout the high school to destroy your enemies, basically, and embarrass them. And they, and they try to do the same to you. And, like, that in D&D would be one skill check, right? Right. And so I think it's important to think about what is your, for lack of a better term, combat, right? Mm -hmm. What is the thing that you want your game to do really well and you want you want to people to build characters and and say like yeah i want to be really good at sewing if your game is about sewing mm -hmm. right or i want to be really good at uh you know um hip-hop dance because this is a game about dance competitions whatever it may be mm -hmm. um you should think about like how can we make this interesting and fun and a game Right. And in D&D, &D, that's combat. And I think that that's great. Um, but, com you know, you could make combat 
a single roll, just like mm -hmm. a skill, and say, hey, if you fail this, you, all you need to say is you don't die, right? Like, if you right. fail this, uh, or maybe you do if you want it to be a super deadly game. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's up yeah. to you. For sure. I mean, you make one roll. If you do really well, you take no hit point damage. If you do poorly, you take more hit point damage. And then we move on to the next combat or the next encounter or whatever. You could totally do that. And But would that reduce the fun for the audience? Most likely. So Correct. there you go. Yeah. Yeah, wow. No yeah. <laughs> we, we've, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot. We have. And we could I've go. I've kept you here a long time, Sean. I apologize. Uh, I, I, think the, I think it's the other way around, but I so <laughs> much appreciate you coming on uh, to, to the show. Anything else you want to talk about, about this before I get to the closing and then let you give your uh, bona fides? Yeah. I think I just want to say uh, to Jim's question. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, in terms of like, what are some ways to make it interesting <laughs> to have mm -hmm. monsters who can fail uh, or who can succeed on a check, but then the players don't get frustrated because none of their spells ever work is I think if you want to boost up saves or give them legendary resistances, you can have monsters succeed at cost. Mm -hmm. So guess what? Your monster can succeed or they gain a level of it cost them a spell or a, a breath weapon recharge whatever it is um, you know you make we did that in flea mortals and it was really successful because it meant mm -hmm. that like these dominate monster matters now when I cast it, it even if they fail against it and use a legendary resistance something cool is happening so I think one of the things you want to keep in mind is that D&D has this system that is made for combat to go quickly, which means that something does not happen every turn. There are mm -hmm. some turns where nothing the status quo does not change. Mm -hmm. um, and that, But that can be frustrating and, and boring for some people, so think about ways that you might change this particular instance. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I bring that up is for a shameless it so that something happens on every turn even if it's just a, a little bit of damage or a little bit of movement or something like that uh, and so far we've been successful and I'm, I'm excited for people to check out the mcdm rpg whenever it uh rears its uh beautiful ugly head beautiful yeah. it's beautiful sophisticated well-designed yes. head yeah. yeah you you broke up a little bit there during that final thing but i i think everyone got the the uh the gist of what you're saying and uh you when it comes out we will make sure to highlight everything that you just mentioned <laughs> in uh in your new book flea mortals and in your upcoming game that we will be hearing about from matt uh repeatedly whether yes. whether it's ready to be talked about or not yes exactly exactly cool. so yeah uh, yeah, th Sean, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm oh. so appreciative. This is a great conversation. Uh, I, I agree. It's always a pleasure chatting with you about role-playing games. And I hope our listeners enjoyed it. And I want to thank our listeners for being uh, supportive, for listening to our nonsense. And some of them even give us a little bit of money to do this. So I want to thank our patrons. Uh, we have Master of Dungeons supporters who who share uh, their their uh, stuff with us and i appreciate that special shout out to our master of realms supporters in our in our show notes here and for our masters of the universe they get a special shout out on the show so we have keith aman of the monsters know what they're doing 
Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at the nerdronomicon.com, Paige Lightman and Ben Heisler. I did that backwards this time. Uh, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Jim Klingler uh, at a, uh, AKA DM Prime Mover. Thank you for your question. Travis Lee, Chad Lynch, the Math Magician, Eric Mengi, the Micro Ant, Sean Molly. You know Sean. Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Krishna Simone, say whatever you want, Joe Tyler, uh, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you to all our listeners and our patrons. You, yes, you out there listening can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash mastering D&D. So, James, where can people find you and your work? Uh, so while it exists, I'm on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. See, twitter.com slash James and Jacasso. Um, I'm also, I stream on Twitch. Uh, my channel is James and Jacasso, my name. Uh, and uh, I just want to take a quick moment here, Sean, to remind everybody to uh, back your Kickstarter that is ending soon, if you're listening to this the day it comes out. So uh, everybody should head on over to the show notes for this episode uh, mm-hmm. and check out uh, the Kickstarter that uh, Ghostfire Gaming has. Uh, you got a, le- a few precious moments to get in there. Uh, so go check it out. I appreciate that. Uh, and you can follow the show, of course, on, as, as James said, Twitter while it's still there, at Mastering D&D. You can find me on Twitter as well, at Sean Merowin. We're, we're on Mastodon as well, YouTube. All the places that you can find us, just yell really loud out your window, and with my super hearing, I will hear you and come running to your RPG rescue. Uh, So, James, we've done recording. We have talked and talked and talked about creating your custom role-playing game. What are we going to do now? Go romance some bears. Yeah. (laughs) 